You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. and I'm the manager of this beautiful department that you're sitting in. It is my honor to introduce to you this evening's moderator, Ron Harris, and co-author with Matthew Horace, premier work, The Black and the Blue. Harris is a former reporter and editor for the Los Angeles Times and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and he is also a journalism professor at Howard University. Our feature guest writer this evening is Matthew Horace, a veteran police officer, federal agent, law enforcement and security expert analyst, senior crisis manager and contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Crisis of the Week column, and university professor. His commentary and experience have been a dependable voice on national law enforcement interests, events, and crisis. He has also been featured on broadcast news segments on MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, the BBC, CNN International, and local affiliate stations throughout the United States and abroad. He is a 28-year veteran of federal, state, and local law enforcement, ascending to the Senior Executive Service rank in the United States Department of Justice managing local, regional, national, and international investigations. In this role, Matthew led and participated in some of the most notable crime investigations of our lifetime. And he probably can explain some of them in his talk. In 2009, he founded the Horace Foundation Endowment for Criminal Justice Studies at Delaware State University in memory of four university students who were slain in a Newark, New Jersey schoolyard. The goal of the foundation is to inspire and support students who are pursuing degrees in criminal justice or related fields. And when I spoke to him earlier, he did state to me that he has worked in every state in the United States. So this evening, Matthew Horace and Ron Harris will discuss their book as they detail the systemic problems of law enforcement and what it's like to be, quote, black and blue, unquote. Please join me in welcoming Matthew Horst and Ron Harris to the Pratt Library. I want to apologize for making you guys wait. And thanks for coming out because it's cold out there. We're very happy to be here. Um, it's funny, when we first started on this book tour, our book company sent us to a lot of places. And we looked up, we didn't have not going to Baltimore. And we called them up and said, well, we need to go to Baltimore. And so they arranged this, and we're very happy to be here because Baltimore was a central part of the book. I live here. Matt has worked here. And so we thought it was important to, uh, to come here. And we understand you guys buy a lot of books. Anyway, so we're going to kind of start right in. Did you have something you want to say? Yeah, I just wanted to, again, echo Ron's sentiments. Uh, I was out there sitting in Uber going, can't you move any faster? And the last time I was in Baltimore, the traffic wasn't quite what it was tonight. So I guess that's, uh, we were in growth-minded city. Uh, and I also failed to mention that in my adult life, I've lived in Maryland probably four times. So uh, being a federal agent, I've been in and out of D.C. five times in my career. So I've lived in Columbia and Laurel and Germantown and Gaithersburg and Fairfax. So I really feel at home. So let's, uh, let's jump right in and uh, have some lively dialogue this evening. You know, Matt and I have been talking about this uh, book for a few months now. But it feels like the events that keep moving forward have made us come back to the book with a different vision. And what we see, and I'm going to ask him a lot of questions and talk to him about this because he's a central figure in the book, uh, is that this book in many ways is a primer for explaining what we are seeing every day. And I want to just go very quickly to uh, three, uh, 
two really recent incidents. That's the th Thanksgiving shooting of a young African-American man down in a mall on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, someone started firing. The crowd ran. The police saw him uh, with a gun. He was fleeing. They shot him and killed him. There were other people fleeing with guns because in, in, in uh, Alabama, that's a very concealed carry state. Uh, just uh, 10 days before that, you had an African-American in uh, man who was uh, subduing a suspect. He was a security guard at a nightclub and saved a lot of lives. And while he was holding the guy, he got shot. And so, Matt, when you read that, did it remind you of any particular part of the book? Sure. Well, um, as you go through the book, and hopefully everyone have the opportunity, uh, one of the things, one of the chapters is called Being Black and Blue. And uh, to a large extent, I explained in that chapter, you know, how undercover, doing undercover is a part of our world in the federal sector and in the state and local sector as well. And undercover is always dangerous, right? There's that hand dance with the suspect and when are you going to give the money and when are you going to get the guns and when are you going to get the money and when are you going to get the drugs? But one thing that was always taught to me when I came on with ATF and even at the state and local was that you need to make sure that everybody that's on that set and that operation understands who you are, what you look like, what you're wearing, and what the code word is, when you're supposed to walk away, when you're supposed to do different things, because you don't want people moving in an aggressive direction towards a good guy. And in one of the cases in the book, I describe a situation where I was doing undercover in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was meeting some suspects who were Hispanic, and when I gave the code word like I was directed to do and as the team knew I was gonna do, and I was walking away, from the scene, a Providence police officer who was not even involved with the operation came up and put his gun in my head and told me to get on the ground. And these are the kind of things that people are fearful of. And that's why I included that story in Being Black and Blue, because it's a dynamic where, in this case, the officer, for whatever reason, felt, who wasn't even involved with the operation, felt that I was a suspect. And I couldn't have looked you know, further from the suspect. The suspect was Hispanic and 5'9", I'm African-American and 6'2", 270. And it's, these are the kind of things that happen, and, and not just to me, but others. And Omar Edwards in New York was an NYPD officer who, when he um, accosted a suspect breaking into his own vehicle outside of the precinct in Manhattan, chased the suspect down. And as he was attempting to arrest the suspect, he was shot and killed by two New York City police officers that mistook him for a suspect. So this dichotomy of being African-American and being in law enforcement, it has some fragility in it. There are just times when these things happen. And all of us that have ever done this understand that that is a risk. And we want people, you know, you get in a room like this and you're talking to 100 uh, law enforcement officers. And I remember people telling me, look, tell everybody in that room, this is what I look like, this is who I am, I am the undercover, don't make any mistakes. But uh, too often these things uh, still happen. But th in this case, these guys weren't of undercover. What they were is just African-American men in a, in a, in a group setting. And <clears throat> it seems like to me it goes more to the first chapter in a lot of ways, which is called The Boogeyman. Right. And can, in, in, can, the Boogeyman, in the Boogeyman chapter, we describe this, this um, consequence or this... Um, this sort of um, being, if you will, this fear of black men that people have oftentimes, and it manifests itself sometimes in very dangerous ways. I mean, because that, that's, that's what happened in Birmingham. That's what happened in, um, uh, outside, in, outside of Chicago. And that was the same case we talked about. And everybody here has probably seen a lot of these cases. Tamir Rice was 12 years old. He was shot. He did not have a gun. But that just you said the word a black man and a gun. Uh, same thing with uh, John Crawford in Ohio, similar situation. Please come on in. Um, but this, it's more than just those individual situations. Most recently, I guess the thing that stunned me was the situation in Minneapolis. Sure. Uh, we already had the shooting in uh, Minnesota uh, of Philando Castile, who's a black, uh, black guy there. But tell me about what happened in Minneapolis and why? Why is this, why are we seeing this? So in, in Minneapolis, uh, what we learned a couple days ago was one of the precincts at the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, they put up a Christmas tree for the season. And on the Christmas tree, someone decided to decorate the tree in very ethnic, inappropriate, stereotyping Christmas ornaments. And the tree was left there for several days. So the book. Well, some of the things, they, for instance, they put up a church, a Popeye's chicken box. 
as an ornament on the tree. They put up a, uh, a, Ford, a, a can of beer, right. a crushed can of beer, cig uh, two packages of Newport cigarettes. And this was sitting in the police station in Minneapolis. So in, in the book, what we talk about a lot is the fact uh, there's a leadership axiom that goes, culture each strategy for lunch. So policing is just like many other professions where trying to change the culture of these practical jokes, these inappropriate statements, racial slurs, certain things that just shouldn't happen in a police environment if you expect fair and equitable delivery of police services happen. So in this case, in this case, as I understand it, the two officers that were responsible for decorating the tree have been suspended. However, as most of us in the room know, especially those of us in law enforcement know, if that tree was up in a precinct, there was about five levels of people that had to be in that building at any given time, and someone somewhere along that chain should have said, wait a minute, stop. This is inappropriate, you gotta take it down. But no one did. So now two officers are suspended, uh, the precinct is under uh, scrutiny, the police department is under scrutiny, and I'm quite sure, um, for those of you that worked internal affairs, as I did for a number of years, now the question is gonna be, who saw what, when, where, and how? Who saw it? What did they do about it? Who did they tell? And why didn't they remove the tree? Because I know in my environment, in the government, I was telling Ron earlier, uh, as a special agent in charge for ATF, if that tree had been in my office, um, the Department of Justice would have removed the whole leadership team, like immediately, once they found out about it. So again, culture, the culture of policing sometimes just gets to the point where people are doing things, saying things, acting certain ways that are inappropriate, and, and, it, and it continues today. Well, you talked about that, we were talking about this on the radio a little bit uh, yesterday, removing the leadership team. That it has happened, and we documented in New Orleans, but it doesn't, uh, New Orleans had a police department that was just rampant. They were literally killing uh, civilians, they were robbing people, they were protecting cocaine shipments. And they hired in a new police chief who ironically came from Washington, D.C., and he, hired, he fired uh, or forced to resign one-third of the whole police department. Sure. We had a similar situation here in Baltimore. It wasn't quite that bad. But you had the eight members of the gang task force. Now, those guys have all been arrested and convicted. But we haven't heard about anything else happening. What, ha what needs to happen in order Shouldn't somebody else be held accountable? Well, I think, I think um, in most cases like that, and of course now we haven't heard what the, what the fallout has been, but certainly having managed a task force, I know that in situations like that, there are like eight different levels of review for finances and overtime and cars and equipment and those sorts of things. So eventually someone else, I'm sure, is going to be asked, you know, what was your role when this was happening if it's not going on as we speak? And that's what, that's what has to happen because it, Things in police agencies are not done in a vacuum. They're not done with one person signing off on something. And, and I know every organization I've ever been in, it's been several levels, corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, commander, especially when it involves money, overtime, resources, and things like that. So. But in, Ju in June, that happened. I mean, these guys got, con got convicted in June. They got, sure. sorry, sorry, they got sentenced in June. Sure. Wouldn't, shouldn't we have heard from the department hey, we're doing these kinds of things in order to engender trust inside the community? Well, well I would think that, I, I would think that we, we, we should have, but I would also think that we will at some point hear what the next steps are going to be involved with something, based on what I know. Okay, and what, well, what forces those kinds of changes? Well, it takes leadership. It takes people at the top to come in, and in this case, I know in, in Baltimore, there's, we have new leadership here in Baltimore. I don't know that they've been confirmed, but they're a new uh, interim chief and commissioner and others. And it needs to be a commitment from the top down that there has to be accountability and there has to be change. I know in the book we talk about New Orleans, and we talk a lot about uh, Richard Pennington, who was brought into the New Orleans Police Department. And as Ron said, with the New Orleans Police Department, it wasn't, it wasn't just a, a beating here or uh, an inappropriate use of force here. In New Orleans, we had police officers that were committing murder in uniform while on duty. And this was a part of the culture. And Pennington and the uh, chief that came after Pennington, they've sort of turned that ship and forced accountability and things are changing. And as Ron said, Pennington had to get rid of almost one-third of the police department to start changing that ship and moving in the right direction. Could he have done that without the mayor? Could he have made no, those changes? Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. 
So is that what needs to happen here? From, I guess one of the things that we seem to have found as we, and I tell you, I covered, I've covered all kinds of stuff in my years as a journalist, and I covered cops a lot, and I covered you know, national law enforcement. And I thought I knew almost all of this stuff, but I, after doing a really deep dive, I've seen a level of corruption I actually was stunned uh, in some of these places. Uh, and one of the things you learn pretty quickly, it goes beyond cops. Well, and we talk about that in the book, you know, we wanted to make sure that as we were writing, and I've, we've gone all around the country talking about the book, and as you read it, you'll know that the book is not anti-cop, right? The book is about how this happens. And it happens not just because there is an occasional cop that makes a bad act. It happens because there are people in political positions, in elected positions, and appointed positions that are either not doing their jobs, that they're complicit in the problem. And a great example of that is in Ferguson. And many people still don't know what happened in Ferguson, right? And what caused Ferguson to happen. In Ferguson, you had a system of tickets and warrants and fines where a certain percentage of the community all had warrants and all had records and all had fines that they owed the government. In fact, at one point, they had more warrants for arrest in Ferguson than they had people living in the city. So you have this system that's really being endorsed by elected officials. You had a police chief there that was told, your job is to collect revenue. And we don't care who, at, at whose expense or how you do it, your job is to collect revenue. And we had police officers in Ferguson that actually didn't agree with that strategy, but they were told, this is what you will do. When you stop a car and you write a ticket, you don't give the person two violations. You give the person eight violations. You give the person nine violations. Why? Because nine violations means $1,000. And two violations means $100. So this was ongoing for years and years and years, and that was a part of the reason why Ferguson really exploded. It wasn't just because of Michael Brown, and it wasn't just because of Officer Darren um, Wilson. Wilson. It was a longstanding practice that was endorsed by politicians, city leaders, commissioners, city managers, prosecuting attorneys, and others. So the issue extends far beyond what uniformed police officers do when they're on the beat. And in fact, we found it, you know, Michael Brown lost his life literally lost his life, but we document other people who lost their lives as well. Uh, not, they weren't killed, but they were stripped of their jobs, they were stripped of their housing, all behind these, these police uh, policies that happened in Ferguson. Uh, also, we discovered this is not a black and white issue. While it's black and white in terms of the vic victims more so, but it's not black and white. No, you know, that's something we wanted to make very clear, and, and we've done that all around the country. Listen, the book is called The Black and the Blue, not The Black and the White, and, there, and there's a reason for that. In examining a lot of what's happening in, in many different police departments, to include Baltimore, and I worked here in Baltimore, but you can't always say it's black and white because there are many departments that are in large part minority. And I know at one point Baltimore is 42% black police department. And we've had black mayors, we've had black police chiefs, we have black city councils, we have black politicians, and Baltimore is not the only city in this regard. St. Louis has a black police chief, a black mayor, so it's not something that we're saying is black and white. This, is, this issue is black and blue, and it has to do with what happens up the ranks from the time people get on the job until the time they get in positions of authority and how the system is sort of skewed against minorities in general, but also how politics and government back a lot of this behavior. I don't think we saw that anywhere more so than in Chicago. Now, I, I lived in Chicago, and, and I also lived in L.A., which I thought had the worst police department when I was there. But when we covered Chicago, oh, that man. was stunning. So, so we go back to this idea that culture eats strategy for lunch. Uh, there are some amazing police leaders out here throughout the United States, and what they find is when you go into organizations that have an embed culture, it's very difficult to change this ship. So let's talk about Chicago for one second. You all probably saw the Laquan McDonald shooting. And as horrific of a shooting and an incident as that was, and Officer Van Dyke was indicted, he was arrested, and he was convicted. But there's a story behind that. And the story behind that is that this idea that cops don't tell on cops, you had five other officers that were at that incident, and five other officers told the same story. In essence, they lied. And they all lied. 
five officers. Even though there was video. Even though, now, keep in mind, how do you get to a point? Now, I've, I've asked police chiefs all around the country, some of my friends, we have the video on the dashboard, we have body cams, why would five people lie to protect one in a bad shooting? But that's a part of that culture that says, and you know, and, and, and the truth be told, I said when I got on the police department in 1986 in Arlington, and this, and this was a part of culture, how many, do we have officers in the room, anyone? When I got on the police department in 1986 in Arlington, Virginia, which, was, which, which is and was a very good department, my on-the-job training officer had been on the job for 30 years. So that places him on the PD in 1956. The first thing he said when I got in the car, what happens in this car stays in this car. That is a cultural nuance to doing our jobs. And I would challenge anyone to tell me that they've never heard that before if you've ever worked a day in the life of a police officer. I mean, we, we talked to uh, hundreds of people, and every cop that I talked to told me that happened, right. uh, that, that they, it was made clear to them. And there were some really crazy stories about how that affected their behavior. And I'll tell one about it. That we, we interviewed a uh, high-ranking commander in, uh, in Chicago, right. Chris uh, Scott King. And she uh, had an interesting story. She came to the police department a little later because she had worked another job. And she was, uh, not, as she said, she, the department didn't raise her. She was already raised. She was an adult before she went in instead of being 18. A lot of these kids, they're going to 18 and 19 and 20 years old. There's somebody literally raising them within the department. And it was commonly known that this one police officer, when he stopped a uh, motorist, he took money. Nobody ratted him out. Nobody ratted him out. But she was not going to be held fault. And the way the rule went was when she, when she got in the car with him, she said, if I see you take money, I'm going to tell. And then he didn't take money when he was with her. But that didn't mean he stopped taking money. <laughs> so there's a culture and there's a way you, you kind of maneuver that, that's, that that allows certain things to continue to happen. And I, I, I personally, I... You know, you hear the, uh, the uh, saying on the streets that uh, snitches get stitches. That's the same philosophy. It's the same philosophy. Well, I know even when I was on the PD, I mean, you get that call, and there's always that one person that, that radios out, and then the next thing you hear the yelling in the radio, and then when you go to provide backup, you get there and somebody's hurt. And there's always that one person that somebody's always hurt on every arrest. And then you mean that one, that one arrest, uh, right. police officer? Right, and then what happens is in, in the squad, people start, look, I'm not working with that. I'm just not, you know, I'm not, I'm not working with them. I'm not working with her every time because they don't want to get caught up in it. The idea is if something's wrong, you should be speaking out about it. And I know in New Orleans, uh, uh, what's the uh, chief? Michael Harris. Superintendent Michael Harris, he started an incentive program where officers hold each other accountable. And of course, he's had to fire some officers. They, some officers have gotten indicted and arrested and convicted and everything else. But New Orleans is turning the corner. And, and, and again, that was once a department where officers were committing criminal acts. And we, and we spelled it out in the uh, book very, very vividly. But one, one of the things, and I'm going to go back to this for a minute, um, and you experienced this, is just the, a lot of these situations occur because of that stereotype, not just uh, and you saw it as a police officer. In uh, Arlington, you talked about how uh, there would be calls that would say there's a suspicious black man uh, at this corner. Right. And your response would be? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a couple of times on the air, like they'd say, or, or respond to this intersection. There's a suspicious black male, and he, and he has a backpack. So I'd say into the air, well, what's he doing? And then on my squad, a lot of the officers would start clicking the mic, you know, just kind of like a, uh, a show of disapproval. And then you get there, and somebody's there giving out flyers or meeting a girlfriend or something like that. You know, at, at one point, I was on the PD. I, I was beginning to think that everybody African-American was suspicious. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the point is that yeah. they're suspicious because they're African-American and they're in the wrong location. Yet, and you gave another example. Remember, the, uh, you had a white guy who they called and said he's suspicious. Right. Yeah, what was that description? Oh, yeah. So, so I go to a call down in South Arlington, and they said it was a suspicious white male. So I get, I get to the call. But what made him suspicious? Well, what made him suspicious was because it was in the wintertime, and he had no shirt on and no shoes and jeans. 
Well, at the time, when, um, what was that drug that was really big at the time? Um, uh, PCP. PCP was really big. And you kind of knew if somebody, if somebody was really, really hot, right, or and it was the middle of winter and they didn't have clothes on, they were probably on, on PCP. So I jumped out of my car and said, hey, I need to speak with you. And he, he, uh, he responded with a racial slur mm-hmm. and said, no, you're not talking to me. And then I called back up. I mean, you know it's going to be on and popping, but at least there's something there. When somebody looks at somebody who's 300 pounds, calls you a, a racial slur and says, you're not talking to me, you know you're going to have a problem on your hand. So, you know, you just call for backup and you sort of deal with it. But, you know, suspicious, what is, you know, sometimes you say, what is a suspicious black male? You know, uh, and, and where are we? And who's making the call? And who's making the de- determination? One of the things you also describe, and I want to go to this because I think it helps us explain or helps the readers understand why certain things go wrong. We've looked at so many cases and we say, why did these officers respond this way when the rules say that's not how you respond? Would you explain about the use of force continuum? Well, most of us operate in in this, what we call a use of force continuum. And use of force continuum begins with your presence. It, It moves on to how you speak with people, how you take control of your environment. And then it can move on to empty hand control. You might need to move someone a little bit this way. You might need to guide them out the door if, they don't, if they're not listening. And then it escalates depending on what suspects do. And it can happen in a split second that you think things are going one direction and, and, and then things start to turn and go another direction. Uh, and then someone can pull a gun or pull a knife or grab a stick or take a swing. And then you have to escalate that use of force. But it's done in stages, right? Give me, yeah, let, let's walk into because you, you actually walked me through it. So you arrive on the scene. What's the first thing they have? What's the first part of the use of force? Oh, as soon as you pull up, you get out of the car. Good afternoon, sir. My name is uh, Trooper Horace. My name is Officer Horace. I'd like to speak with you. The way you speak. I don't need to talk to you. Yeah, I need to speak with you a couple seconds. If you just give me a couple minutes, we can be on our way. I'm not going to talk to you. Well, we are going to talk. You know, we just need to have a couple minutes. And, and then they start to walk away, you get in front of them and say, no, I need you to stop right is now. That, is that the second? Is that the second? The first thing is your presence. Second presence, thing is what? Presence, verbal commands. Okay. And then after that, it just, it just sort, of, it sort of evolves, just depending on what the person does. The person might say, no, I'm not standing here talking to you. And then you might touch the person on the arm. And you might say, I need to talk to you. I need you to stay right here. And then that might work or it might not work. Then they may pull back. They may pull back and swing. So now you move from a swing and you grab your baton and you give them a strike across the femur or across their leg or across wherever. Just to get, and then it just sort of escalates from there. But it doesn't go from jumping out of the car to drawing your gun and shooting a person. In, in, or in or the, it shouldn't go there. Or it shouldn't, unless they're armed and presenting that sort of threat to you or someone else. When you saw, and we talked about the, well, let, you, you, let's go from uh, one of the things you talked about was a ca- your own case where you were dealing with the use of force continuum, and you compared that to what happened to uh, Terrence Crutcher in Oklahoma. Can you walk through that? Right, This yeah. is in, in Arkansas. You started with a Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, I respond to a call about a domestic, and I meet a complainant, and the complainant said, listen, I want Leslie out of my apartment, right? I've had it. I've been assaulted. The complainant was bleeding. And at the time, whenever you see uh, visible evidence of a uh, domestic assault, somebody's going to jail, and, and you, you can't not arrest them. So I respond there as myself and a female officer, and we're on the first floor, so we start walking up stairs. And we had already made the decision that the female officer was going to take the lead because it was a guy who was injured, and the guy was bleeding from the mouth and the eye. So you figured there'd be a woman upstairs? So we just figured there'd be a woman upstairs, you know, naturally, according you know, to how we were thinking at the time. Well, we get upstairs, and there's not a woman upstairs. There's a man upstairs. And the man is sitting down. He's pretty large. We don't know quite how large he is. And we're telling him, well, you know, um, your, your partner wants to uh, file charges, so we need you to come downstairs. We need you to stand up. And he's telling us, you know, I'm not going to stand up. This is my house. I don't want to leave. He's getting a little emotional. My partner and I are starting to wonder, okay, how are we going to get this? And we could see the guy. The guy was wider than I am now. And I was probably 310 pounds at the time, I'm 250 now. So to give you a sense, he was huge. And we could see his arms and his shoulders. And now we've asked him like four times to stand up. Now, those of us in the room know we're not going to beat her all day. And we said, look, we need you to stand up. We've got to go. So at some point, he stands up. This guy's like 6'8", over 300 pounds. And, I, and then I say to him, well, we need you to sit down. Right? <laughs> 
we said to him, we said, look, we need you to sit back down. And he says, well, wait a minute, you told me to stand up. I'm not sitting down, I'm standing up. So now I'm still getting a little tense here. And we got, to, we got this guy standing there, so now we're thinking, now we're thinking, we're going to have to go to, you know, he's not doing what we say, this is going to get bad, it's going to get bad fairly quickly. Small space, big, strong, muscle-bound guy, two people, we don't want to get thrown around the apartment. So our biases led us to a place where we didn't even imagine that there would be a man upstairs, right? And that's what they were, they were biases. How could we, how could we know and why should we know? And then, out of nowhere, at some point, we're like, look. Then you see he's a big, big black guy. He's a big black, big black guy, right? And to me, as, a, as, as an African-American man, it never really mattered to me. You know, I'm seeing somebody big. I played college football. These, these kind of things really didn't excite me too much. And, uh, but we're thinking this is going to go bad. And that, all of a sudden, this guy puts his, his head in his hands and he starts crying. And he says, I really don't want to go. I don't want to go to jail. And now things de-escalate a little bit. And, and we know now that this is not going to go very bad. And we ask him to walk downstairs with us, which he does. We put him in cuffs, and we, and we take him down to the station. But this could have gone very, very, very bad had we not had the sense and the presence to understand that this was not a bad situation. It was just a situation. And had it gone bad, you know, we might have been justified to use deadly force. But how does that compare to Crutcher? Well, Terrence Crutcher in Oklahoma, I don't know if everyone saw what happened in um, Tulsa when he was walking back to the vehicle. The police were called because there was some sort of, uh, he was doing something. In the street. I don't remember what he was doing. He was, just, he was standing in the street next to his, he was standing in the street at that point. And four officers show up. They tell him to stop. He doesn't stop. He starts walking back to the car. One officer fires. The other officers don't. And it's ruled justified over the long period of time. I think initially... She uh, was charged with murder. She was charged, yeah. She was charged. She was not convicted. And that was something I spoke about on CNN. And I said, as a commentator, I said, listen, we've been in these situations hundreds of times when it's four against one. And I, don't, I never remember a situation that was four against one where one person shot and the other ones didn't. In a situation like that, we were always taught to grab that person and get them under control fairly quickly. She apparently saw something that the other officer but what did, didn't. What did the people in the helicopter say? Well, that was the issue of her husband was in the helicopter, and he said, without any independent information, that looks like one bad dude. One bad dude. And there was no radio traffic that said he was a warner for anything? No. He had not been arrested? He, the car wasn't stolen. stolen? He wasn't wanted. The car wasn't stolen. But that looks like one bad dude. So that goes back to this idea that we're making these split-second judgments, right, on how we expect people to behave and, how, and what we think of them. And let me tell you, if, 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 poli if a police officer thinks you're a bad dude, they're going to speak to you differently, they're going to approach you differently, and they're going to respond to you differently. But how does someone in a helicopter make an assertion that I am a bad dude? Right. It, are there tattoos? You know, are there, does a person look like an OMO, outlaw motorcycle gang member? Do they have, and even if they did, if they have long hair, and you know, who, who knows? Who knows? But why did Tarrant Crutcher have to be one bad dude from a thousand feet in the air, and why did he have to die? Uh, switching, uh, and, and then I think we're going to open this up for questions. Uh, we were hoping that uh, Chief Leonard Ham, he said he was going to try to make it tonight. Oh, is he back there? Oh, and, and oh, well, we're very happy that we've got Chief Ham. We're going to cut this off real quick. <laughs> and uh, uh, former Sergeant uh, Lisa Montague, who were both in the book. And we want to bring them up and have them join us because uh, we're going to ask a lot of questions. And I wanted, we both wanted someone here. They, again, they were in the book and they were invaluable uh, uh, in terms of what they talked about in the book and helping us understand some of the dynamics of, of this city. Last thing, as, they, as they're coming up, one of the things that we found that really is, a, is an important thing is that there's a last chapter called At the End of Failing Systems. And what it says, you can have my chair. Um, what it says, what it says is that we are much, much responsible for this and some of the issues that police deal with because we as a society have allowed certain things to happen that put police in bad places. For instance, one of the things we found, for instance, though black men are three times more likely to be shot by police, the mentally ill are 12 times more likely to be shot by police. 
The reason that happens is because police are now the default call on mentally ill. They're not trained to deal with mentally ill. But if you call, and we document that as a, uh, he might be here, Robert Joyce. Is Robert Joyce here? And I'm, I'm going to go to him. Robert Joyce was uh, the lawyer in a very important case here. What was the gentleman's name? I can't remember his name right now. Franklin Williams. Franklin Williams was schizophrenic. And if I get any of this wrong, you'll, I'm sure you're correct. Franklin Williams was schizophrenic. And this happens across the country. We've talked about it. He was schizophrenic here in Baltimore. His mother came home, and his mother couldn't get in the house. And they, she had noticed that Franklin had been not kind of off his meds. So she called her daughter, or was it her daughter, who was a nurse. What should I do? She said, call 911. So she called 911. She didn't ask for the police. She asked for somebody to help get her son to the hospital. And what they did was they sent the police. And in that process, the police came through the back door. They went upstairs, and they shot him 11 times. Is that the right number? They shot him 11 times, and they said he came at them with a knife, and they were at risk. And that story would have flown. It just, they just didn't notice his 12-year-old nephew was in the room across the hall, and he saw the entire thing. And in fact, he, all the blood was in the room while the officers were outside the room. And he had never made it past the doorway. And when that young 12-year-old got on the stand, which is amazing to me, they could not shake him because he said, this is what I saw. Now, the sad part of that case is they won that case. The man survived. They won that case. He got awarded $600,000, but because of, I think it's the, the yeah, the, the caps in the city, he only got 200000 Now, you think that 200000 is a lot, but now you got a, a, a guy with schizophrenia, and now he needs all kinds of help because, he fortunately, he survived those 12 shootings, those 12 shots. So anyway, that is something that we do. And it's not just that. And you'll see it in the book. It goes to education. And I think uh, Chief Ham, I'm going to let Chief Ham talk about this because he gave us a lesson in five things. He's got five things. And we took those five things to police chiefs across the country, and everybody agree with you, Chief. All right, so that's it for me. I'm going to introduce uh, both of these two wonderful people. We have uh, Lisa Montague, who's a former sergeant in the Baltimore Police Department. He taught me all about what women deal with in the police department. And we have Chief Leonard, uh, former Commissioner uh, Leonard Ham, who was uh, just invaluable and invited us in and gave us a lot of information. So we're going to open it up. I'm going to bring this mic around and let you guys ask questions. To, and I really wanted them here so you can have the guys who are hometown and um, ask any kind of questions you want. Anybody got a question? Come on, I was going to say we weren't that good. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned something that just made me ask this question. Is there a correlation? You mentioned New Orleans and there's some high crime rates. You mentioned Chicago, high crime rates, but also issues with the police department. What is the correlation, Baltimore City, right, Gun ta Trace Task Force, is there a direct correlation between challenges with the police department, murder rates, high crime rates, et cetera? Have you found that? I have not found that. And it, yeah, I was going to say there are, some, there are some philosophies on it, and I'll let Chief Ham, uh, but there, there have been a lot of academics that have studied that very issue. I don't know that they've come to anything conclusively. So, Chief? Well... Commissioner, I'm sorry. I keep calling you yeah. chief. Uh, but let me add, I've been doing this for 47 years, and, uh, and that's working the streets of Baltimore. And I often wonder and ask myself, why is North and Smallwood the same and hadn't changed in 30 years? And why is it that Homewood is the way it is and hadn't changed in 30 years? And it's not color. I, I found out in correlation to me, and like I said, it's anecdotal. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a scientist. But what I do know is that when you have poor housing, and when you have poor health, and when you don't have economics going right, and when you don't have education going right, 
And when you don't have transportation and you don't fix those things, you're going to have crime. Crime is a symptom of that. You're going to have it and all the stuff that relates to it. Now, I live on Madison Avenue, west side of town, three blocks from the Epic Center, where the riots happen. Um, Elijah Cummins lives two doors from me. I have a, a, a student, a dean of students from Merlin Institute of Art lives across the street from me. And we live right there in the neighborhood in row houses. They call them townhouses someplace in New York. We ain't number row houses. That's all they are. But we're okay with housing. We're okay with health. We're okay with economics. We're okay with education. And we have transportation. And stuck right there on Madison Avenue, our neighborhood is safe and stable and secure. And until cities solve those things, you're going to continue to have this mess, both from the police and both from the other side. And I think we, we and I don't mean to cut you off, but we pointed that out in the book when we went to Chicago. Because if you go by neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood, and there's one part, there's a neighborhood called Hyde Park, and what there's a, and there's a literal park separates. that separates them from another neighborhood where the economics are exactly what he described, high crime over here, low crime over here. But I want to talk to uh, Ms. Montague for a minute because she uh, was, she brought uh, us past just the issue of race but also the issue of sex in terms of when you came on the department. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I joined the department in 1979. And being a female, it was, of course, going into a career that is mostly thought of as for males. It was hard on, on that sense as for them to take me serious, for me to step into the role and uh, getting the same pay, the same respect as the male officers, not just as a black female and as to a white male, but as a black, as a female, period, stepping into that role. It was very hard. Um, I had to fight every day to get the respect that I deserved for holding the position as a Baltimore City police officer. They didn't take me seriously at first, um, to the point where they did or they thought that they were going to run me off the force. They just didn't know me. Uh, no, that, that was not happening. Um, so yeah, so you can imagine everything that a female would go through in a, a male-dominated uh, occupation. Everything that you can think of that was said or could be done was tried, but you have to, if you go there with the mindset that this is what I'm gonna do, this is my job, no one's going to deter me from uh, doing my goals. So that's what I did. And yeah, I had to put up with a lot of uh, sexual statements, harassment, um, but you just deal with it. You do what you have to do to survive. And that's at the time in that generation, in that era. That's what you did. You did what you had to do to survive, knowing that they... It's nothing that they could do to deter what I wanted to do. Yeah, did it hurt my feelings? Yeah, but I could deal with that. Words was as long as nothing else happened. I could deal with the slurs and the little tricks that they played. But I, I think most women in a male-dominated uh, occupation would go through the same thing as well. It's just your mindset. <laughs> what you are determined to do. And as a female, you couldn't go in and use your brute strength, per se, to get the respect or to have them fear you. That's not how you do it as a female. You had to use this, and that's exactly what I did. Let me interrupt for a second. One of the things that amazed me as a guy, who kind of, like I said, covered up, I couldn't even believe after, 
what I found is many, particularly early on uh, African-American police officers, it amazed me that in some way that they even became police officers uh, because their experiences, and beginning with, uh, uh, I'd like to start with you and then quickly go across the board, because each of you, have, I think you and, and I don't remember it on any chief, I mean commissioner, you all had bad experiences with police starting out, whereas when you were civilian. You talk about what it was like being in your neighborhood, how you felt. Well, growing up in, I grew up in East Baltimore, and we had a saying that before you dial 911, be very careful because you don't know what's coming. And so we took care of our own. We didn't want them, didn't want the police officers coming into our home because when they came into the home, they took over, no matter what the issue is, no matter what you called them for, you called them for help. But they would come in and just dominate, you know, come in, sit down, shut up. And that's not something you wanted. So it's like, no, you don't, we don't need the police. Let's keep them out of our neighborhood. We deal with whatever we have to deal with within our community. And you kind of fear them. So that's, as growing up, that's the opinion that I had of police. Don't call them. They're not going to help you deal with it yourself. So that, that was pretty hard to, to deal with as a child. But as you're growing up, you realize so it, there's another aspect of this. But, yeah, that was out. Your, my first opinion of police officers was, no, don't, don't, don't call them. Deal with it yourself because you never know what you're going to get when they come into your home. Sure, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And those of you might have heard of Frank Rizzo and the notorious Philadelphia Police Department. It was a very, Philly's a cop town. And uh, I was a Division I athlete at Delaware State University. One summer, I was home for uh, the summer, and I went to a parade to celebrate the 76ers who had won a national championship. And I got attacked by a Philadelphia Police canine officer. And by the, I got attacked by the dog, not the officer. Uh, I got bitten on, now, I was a, I was a scholarship athlete. I wasn't arrested, I wasn't interviewed, I was left on the street bleeding. When police officers came to pick me up and take me to the hospital, they took a report and about everything that happened, you know, what I told them and everything else. Uh, I was in the hospital for a week, I had stitches on my ankle and leg, and when I got out of the hospital, my parents did some research, uh, they were friends with Asa Moore, who was a journalist in Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And when they did their research and got copies of the police report, the police report, number one, identified me as a suspect, not a victim. And number two, the police report said that I had unknown in in injuries and that it was uh, unknown how I ended up in the hospital. So here's, a, so here's a case where a police department that has, I don't know, 5,000 cops and you have a canine officer that, and, and you have officers that took me to the hospital that couldn't have known they couldn't have known the canine officer, right? They still lied on the report to cover up what had happened. So that was my first experience dealing directly with the Philadelphia Police Department. And then when I became a law enforcement officer myself, you know, you had these situations and these incidents where guys are throwing racial slurs out. You know, this is, this is like in the late 1980s, early 90s. So it became very clear to me at that time, you know, where I was, what I was involved with. And then every black officer, every black federal agent that I've ever worked with, and I've said to him, I've said to them, hey, guys use racial slurs in your environment? They're like, are you kidding me? Every day, they go to the precinct in New York and other places in Boston. And, 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 and the fact, if you didn't hear it, it's because they didn't use it around you because it was you. But when you weren't there, that M-word, that M-bomb was being dropped day in and day out. So. I'm sorry. In the what? When you first, your first neighborhood you worked in. Oh, well, let me, let me tell you this. When I was 15 in the 10th grade. I was arrested. I, grew, I was raised in Cherry Hill, by the way. And um, I'll never forget this. It was a Wednesday evening because my favorite TV show was I Spy. Come on, I'm on the see I Spy. I go to the cleaners. They get up to the shopping center. get my pants out the cleaners. I'm with two friends of mine. I go into the cleaners, they stay outside. I come outside, police have them up against the wall, assuming the position. So the police officer says um, to me, 
are you with them? I said, never saw them in my life. <laughs> Don't know who they are. Arrested me also. So we're 15, they put us in a wagon, they take us down to the precinct, and we stayed there all night. And eventually, we got out. Well, the next day, and we were sent to school the next day. Um, what I learned in Cherry Hill, when I became a police officer, I was taught what not to do as a police officer, watching these police officers in Cherry Hill. And I was determined, and it was a convoluted way how I became a police officer anyway, but anyway, when I became one, I was determined, I'm not going to be like that. I know how I'm not going to be. So that's what happened to me at 15. Uh, I read an article in the Washington Post a couple of years ago or so, and they were talking about all of the people across the country who had been killed by police officers. And one of the points they made was that once an officer crossed that line and took that step to kill somebody, it then became easier for him to do that again. And it's sort of a two-part question. One, did you find any evidence of that type of mentality in your interviews, and also, in general, as we see in the news, especially when it involves unarmed black men, there seems to be very little or few consequences for this, these police officers, and did you find that that encouraged them to go ahead and use deadly force more frequently or more easily since that they might get you know a little hassled about it, but eventually nothing serious was going to happen to them. Did you see anything that reinforced that type of mentality? Well, I'm going to answer the first question first. Speaking from someone who has been involved with several shooting incidents, I don't know that being involved with one shooting makes it any easier to do it again, because every situation is uniquely different. If you're using um, escalator levels of force the way it's designed, it's a very scary situation, right? And you're fearing your life if you're doing it the way it should be done. As it relates to your second question, as it relates to your second question and the research that we did, I mean, it's just like open your eyes. There's, just, there's so much happening. Philandra Castile, Austin Sterling, I mean, just person after person. I, don't, I can't say what's in these officers' hearts and minds, but clearly one chapter in the book we say, do black lives really matter, right? And we spend a lot of time talking about why this is happening and, you know, do black lives matter? I mean, do they matter, right? And, and we asked the question because there is a level of disrespect and a level of non-consideration that we are seeing right now that I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime or my career. And then if you just go back, incident after incident after incident. And I think part of it's cultural. We can't put it on, we can't lay that on every white police officer or every black police officer. But cer certainly right now, if you look at what just happened in Minneapolis the other day, and it wasn't use of force, it was, it, was a, it was a very dumb thing. But given everything else that's happened in the country during the last several years, how could anyone have the discourtesy to do that unless they felt that it would be okay? So somewhere, somewhere people are getting a message that this is acceptable. And the message might be, that juries aren't convicting. Look what happened in South Carolina. They had to go to trial twice to get a conviction. So, I, I, and I've never worked with anyone that's ever said anything like, hey, I think it's open seat. No, no. It's just the messages that people are getting. Matt, Matt didn't, didn't you tell me that at one point there was a sort of a mantra that people said it's better to be carried, I mean, be judged by 12 than carried by six? Oh, sure. I mean, that was a part, that's a, that's a part of the culture. Truth be told, everyone said, look, look, if you're going to make a decision, and is your life or my life? I'd rather be judged by, you know, 16 than carried by six. I mean, you know, or, or whatever it was. And that was coming up through the ranks. Yes, sir. So from my personal experience, it's a culture in the police system that they just deal with us different. Sure. So, like, I wonder what's different between one or two unarmed black men and the difference between a whole slew of two different bike clubs full of white guys that they dealt with like complete citizens 
on every level, and they armed and they killing each other. But you see an unarmed black guy, and the first thing you think of is to do is shoot. Like it's like, how can I put it? We the number one suspect across the board, but we the minorities, right? When y'all read the, uh, the dispatch, number one male, blue jeans, right? Number two male is who? Hispanic, right? Like it's the it's the culture, like it's the culture of the system. It, some things just gotta change, or we gonna keep having these meetings and get nothing done. And, and I mean, we're going to take a couple of more questions. Then I would like that panel to talk about. I think he you hit the nail on the head. What would you say to all of these people that they can do to change that? Because this is about empowering everybody in this room to do something, not just to hear about it, but to do something to change that. Hold on, just a second. Let me tell you what I've always wanted. Um, when I became police commissioner of this city, the department was, was, it was a war. I had to go in as a wartime general because we were fighting on several different fronts. I walked into a police department that was not equipped or didn't have the will to do what it was supposed to do and that was to protect you all. Didn't have it. So now I, I have to figure out, and, and, and there was no trust, there was no transparency, there was none of that. In Baltimore City at the time there were 263 community associations. And I went to every last one of those community associations and say, look, for 40 years in our arrogance, we thought we knew what you wanted and we thought we knew what was good for you. I saying we were wrong. I said, now I'm asking you to tell me how do you want me to police you? You tell me. Because in our arrogance, we think we know what you want. You live here. I stand here eight hours a day and going to tell you what's good for you. You need to start telling us as police what you want us to do and how you want us to police. That's what I want to see happen. That's exactly what I want to see happen. And it can be done. Believe me, it can be done. Right now, the Baltimore Police Department, I love that. I love it, man. I mean, I, I love it. That's it. I love it. But there's no leadership there right now. They don't have any idea what they're doing right now. And there are a lot of good police officers, a lot of good people there. They just don't have any leadership. And I will tell you what I found out in life. Two things, if you want success. Leadership and relationships. And right now, we don't have any of that. Thank you, Jude. Permission. I got a question. Thank you. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask a question specifically to Baltimore, like for Baltimore. The shooting that happened with the police officer in Sandtown, I, at one point, the investigation seemed like the Department of Justice was going to come in because it was so messy. But then the next couple of pieces of information, when I was following it, said that the DOJ didn't even want to touch it. So I'm just wondering, like, in, in a situation like that, who is held accountable? Like, who, who holds them accountable when it's something where there is really no suspect? It's a lot of police, it's police officers with each other. But a neighborhood gets locked down, and it's very, um, almost like martial law. They were showing ID to come in and out of their houses. But then the federal government decided that it wasn't even important enough for them to investigate, or it was too messy for them to investigate. So what do you as citizens do then to think, to be confident that the police are doing what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, the way they're supposed to do it? Is this, is this the I'm one where they the police committed suicide? Yeah, his name was Sean oh, Spice. Oh, okay. Sean Suter, that's his name. I, I think right now, I, I, I don't think anybody can answer that because these two wonderful people are not with the police department now, and Matt, you're not with, and unfortunately, we can't come up with an answer for that one. But I, I'm just as puzzled as you are. I know. I, I, let me get this. This is going to be our last question right here. Hey, hello. I, I have a question for, I know you guys are, like you said, he, he, you guys are not, um, in the streets and in the trenches right now. But when you were uh, police officers, and being as though police brutality is so prevalent these days, 
Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you um, had to use a force with the opposite race? And if so, how did it make you feel? Well, certainly as a patrolman, I did. And there's, again, we go back to this idea. You never want to have to do that. You know, and look, life would be better if you did your job every day and that never happened. But when it happens, I never felt any different if the person was black, yellow, green, or brown, or, or white. I just didn't because normally those situations are very scary, right? So, you know, you, you get a situation where you're rolling around the ground for your gun. That is a scary, scary situation. And I don't care what color you are, I'm going home at night, right? And that's your mentality, right? Unfortunately. And race has never mattered to me in that regard. I had the, I had the misfortune to arrest a drunk driver who was a white man. And, and um, he was calling me niggas and everything like that, which is no big deal. I've been called that all my life in Cherry Hill and everything, so it's no big deal. That rolled up, but then he 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 got some some spit in his throat. I said I said don't do that, don't do that, and he let fly and I left. I knocked his ass out, and it felt good. Um, when you do get in a situation like that, you don't think about uh, it's the opposite sex or it's a different race or anything. At that point in time, you're thinking about self-preservation. So you do what you're trained to do as a police officer to bring that situation under control. It is not until after the situation has been resolved and hopefully it was with an arrest um, that you then begin to realize what you did and how you did it, and, and different police officers react in different ways. For me, the adrenaline would come out. So as I'm writing my report, my hand is all over the place because I'm realizing what did I just do or, or what did I have to do. But your training kicks in, so you don't really think about who that person is or where they come from, yeah, yeah, yeah. what their sex is. You're just... Uh, protecting yourself and trying to bring the situation under control. They're going to close us. I got to. I would love to go on and on and on, but they're going to. Huh? Yeah, right here. Right here. Who? Up front. Who? This is Okay. So, just in your experience, I've had my own experiences. Um, do you think that police departments around the country? The idea of hiring more of your own. Um, we, we have, when I was in the military, police officer now, um, I've met people, a lot of people, a lot of white people, who have literally never met or been in, in any kind of position with black folks. So the only thing they have, they know about us, black folks, is what they see in movies, TV, and the arrests that come on the news. So when they're in a position to... Uh, to be in an authoritative position as a police officer, now they're confronted with all the psychological things they've been hearing about forever. And a lot of times, you talk about that force continuum, a lot of times they, they go straight from just their presence to deadly force because they know no different and they, they look at, it, at us as, as the boogeyman. Um, do you think, so the question is, do you think that hiring more, is it any, any kind of research to, that, that says that hiring more blacks African-Americans to police their own communities would help in that situation? Well, no, if you actually, if you, look at, if you look at the data, it would show you otherwise. And if you look at Baltimore and other departments that are predominantly African-American, that are still under consent decrees. So there's that. But then there's also the piece that I know very well, New York City Police Department, 36,000 police officers at full, full-time equivalents. Where do the majority of their white police officers come from? Out of town. Long Island, New York one of the most segregated places that you can ever live. And, and a lot of police officers I know who are white in New York say, I never met anyone African-American until I became a police officer. So there's that issue. Yes. Let me, let me, let me, let me address that. But here's what I think the issue is. It's, it's who you recruit. 
It's how you train them. It's how you discipline them and how you supervise them. You gotta have those four things in place. And who you wanna recruit? You wanna recruit people who come here with a sense of service and not a sense of adventure. Now, when I have a young person I'm interviewing who tell me, man, I wanna wear beard and work narcotics, and I, I don't want that person. I don't want them. Because they're coming here for a sense of adventure. You want a person to come here with a sense of service. And you can do that by simply asking questions. Thank you. So we're moving on to book signing? Yeah, yeah we're moving on to book signing. I want to thank everybody for coming. Please, please come. And uh, pl I hope you buy a book. Hope it, it's a really, really good book. It even surprised thank me. You. Thank you. First of all, thank This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.